0: Don't act like you're not impressed. Let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lanes, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Oh, welcome back everybody. Hella average with me Jose coming to you from well, the city of the future. That's right, Phoenix. Oh man. Okay, so how you guys doing? I'm ho- I hope everybody's doing well. I uh I actually went to the um uh to the the mailbox and Checked to, to see if um, if Brad had written back, and unfortunately, still don't have anything um, in there, don't have a letter from him. Like I said, it, it might not even come, and if it does, it could be a, a while, but I was hoping maybe he'd respond a little bit sooner since we haven't spoken in, in quite a long time. So, uh, that's all right. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And hopefully the next episode, number 118, we will have it. If not, then I guess we'll just have to find something else to talk about. Um, Again, welcome back. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, also, uh, YouTube channel. I've been throwing up a lot of shorts up there, mainly cars. And, you know, the, the cars are taking a little bit they they take a lot less time so you know anything as far as scripted um b-roll type of stuff even or any type of sketch comedy anything like that it's always going to take a long time animations as well still still trying to work on those haven't been able to touch them as much i know i've said i still have a few coming i was supposed to have a couple uh one a couple weeks ago but wow um there's a lot that just keeps rolling in in a, in a great way, though. So um, it's it's fine. I know that um, those things right now are, are are what needs to be... Like, I love being, handling all this type of stuff. So I don't mind at all in the animations. You know, um, I get to work on them a little bit here and there. So they're just taking a little bit longer than normal. I'm just juggling quite a few different... Um, irons in the fire and that's the only way my brain works so i'm good with it definitely good with it but i'll have them up i'll have them up and um and so yeah so i have quite a few of those and then don't forget to check out my jose Mesa underscore creator uh instagram as well and i've been posting there quite a bit also uh, among the other things of course that i still have to, to keep coming i uh I gonna be um going into this I'm gonna try to go into this really quick because I, this might be a little bit of a long one I actually came across this one just that uh you know coincidentally which I had plans for a couple other ones like I said my boy Rick always sends me some great topics and this one he hadn't sent me this one but I just thought it was quite interesting and I, I wanted to jump on it before I forgot about it um oh, but uh but really quick uh you know Getting getting ready to head out on the 4th of July weekend to see the family. Very, very excited about it. I can't wait. I haven't been to the 4th of July up to my parents in a long time. But, you know, the 4th of July here in, in Phoenix and over in, you know, the Vegas area really isn't the greatest. It's always crazy hot and it's it's straight just miserably fucking hot, honestly. So it's a good time, and took uh, to, to get to take a couple extra days off. I can't wait. It, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. I got my nephews coming down. We played some Xbox Call of Duty over the, the weekend, which they made me end up staying up a little bit later on two nights. One on Friday night stayed up stayed up till one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I know it's all their fault, hundred percent, not mine at all. And then ended up. Staying up late on Sunday too, even though I'm supposed to go to the gym at five fifteen, which I still do. But I was very, very tired. It's it's all it was all worth it. It's fantastic, and those times I actually have a little bit scheduled for my time off. So it's excellent. You gotta listen. I gotta schedule time for all my projects and all the work that I do, and I gotta schedule time for my hobbies, I guess, in a sense, is that, I mean, you know, things that I enjoy, things that I love to do, that's not work, I, well, God, it's not really not work either, I, that's why I hate to say like, the, the, the podcasting, the, the videos, the, the animation, I mean, I, I call it work because I'm working, but it's not really work because I do love it, so, you know, it's just, I guess, the non-productive stuff, Maybe that's a better way to go. I don't know. Anyways, it was fun. It was great. And so going to be able to go see them here in the next uh, week and a half. And uh, man, looking forward to it. It'll be fun. So today we have a... um, We have a... I think it's going to be a little bit of a longer podcast, which is why I want to just jump into it pretty quickly. And the only reason I'm saying that is because... Well, I'm not gonna go into it. You know what? I don't wanna I don't wanna I don't wanna say too much about it. You'll you'll find out here in uh you know as as I'm going through it, but it's it's uh I found it interesting. Think of it a little bit of a D uh uh what's his name? D B Cooper. Man, a little brain fart there. Sorry, my bad see what staying up late does to you. I ended up having to stay up late last night too, but only because I was doing some other work for my IG stuff. Um, You know, that posting stuff, man, takes a minute, you know, it's crazy. Um, But still, again, everything's great. And, um, you know, uh, also check out my my boys, ExoMod, um, exomodcarbon.com. Not sponsored by him, <laughs> but I love doing the work for him. We are rebranding his the logo, and very very happy to do it. And so far, uh, we're just you know gonna start you you start seeing that on the on the social medias and every everywhere else that uh, you can find it. So for those of you that don't know, Exomod Carbon um, is the uh, is also the ig you could take a uh, you can take a quick look at the logo there and um you know i love doing that stuff and i was uh very lucky enough for my boy rick to uh, bring me on to help him with that and so far you know i think we're moving in the great direction or right direction check out his ig check out his site exomod carbon, exomodcarbon.com, exomod.com still comes up, and um, yeah, check out the IG, we also do have a a YouTube up there, but we still, we're trying to get more content for that, anyways, just wanted to give a shout out to my boy there, because it's been, uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure, truly, for him to bring me on on board, to help him with, um, you know, this uh, amazing idea that he, his genius mind came up with. Oh, um, so I guess, is it time for some business? Some business, yeah. Um, Okay, so let's get into it. I mean, look at this. I'm getting into it. Let's see, what what time do we have? What time do we have? It is eight minutes, eight minutes. Trying to read it upside down. Eight minutes, and I'm already getting into this bad boy. This is going to be good stuff. Yeah, Rick is not going to hear this until a couple days from now, so I can't say that I'm live. But for me, I'm live, but I just had to text Rick back because um, he had feedback from his mom about the logo. And, yeah, Rick, I was just texting you back. It exudes confidence. I got to say, ooh, that is, like, on point. That is, you know, you always try to, as a designer, as an artist whatever it may be you always try to um i don't know communicate and display what what you feel what you want a logo or whatever it is to make you feel uh emotionally that's what you try to come across get across to your to your audience and she had said some some other other great terms honestly um it was uh, uplifting energetic and strong It's exactly right but she says exudes confidence you know and that's a time when you just go oh wow i actually you know that's something that you that you try to do you try to have in your mind you try to have in your head and you hope that 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 you can relay that type of message to others and you know that always great that's fantastic so thank you uh rick's mom it's uh very, very, very noble and kind words, and um man, that uh, that's on point. Okay, so, what are we going on today? Well, this is podcast episode number 117, and it is actually the 100 million dollar heist that rocked the world. Okay, so in on this one, I'm going to do just a slight bit different. Uh, I'm going to go just kind of along the lines of what I've done in the in the past and I will come to another section and I'll let you know just a little bit of difference of what I'm going to make what I'm going to do with this one but don't worry it's still going to be good and it should uh, it's going to be fun so hopefully you guys enjoy this okay so the 100 million dollar heist that rocked the world also known as the antwerp diamond heist well i'm probably not pronouncing that right because that is in um german i believe yes right yes let me hey jamie chat gpt you know he was giving me a little bit of issues oh sorry that's uh belgium my bad um jamie chat gpt let me know what's going on here real quick let me, can you pronounce this for me or at least help me pronounce this Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Cheapy tea. Antwevin. Antwevin. Let's see. Hold on. Let's see again. You might not be able to hear it. Antwevin. I'm going to call it Antwerpin because, you know, it's what us American people do. We like to pronounce it the way we look at it. Trust me. I know that by experience because speaking, being a fluent Spanish speaker, I hear it all the time. From other people, uh, okay, so uh, Antwerp and Ant Antwap and Twaven and Twapin and the Antwerp Diamond Heist. How about that? <laughs> the, the Antwerp Diamond Heist, um, also known as the Antwerp Diamond Center or ADC. So, uh, this was I again, this was very interesting. So, the heist, dubbed the heist of the century, was the largest diamond heist of all time, all right and uh and since then the heist was classified to be one of the largest robberies in history i mean 100 million dollars holy shit that's 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 a lot of money in jewelry too which is kind of crazy right i mean i guess you could just break it down or break it up but it's not like you can sell it in its whole deal because well you're just going to get caught immediately at that point i would imagine Well, maybe yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on who you sell it to. Uh, So it says that thieves stole loose diamonds, gold, silver, and other types of jewelry valued at more than $100 million. The great thing is, is it occurred over the weekend, right after Valentine's Day. Uh, It occurred over the weekend of February 15th to the 17th. And believe it or not, not like not crazy long ago, uh, you know, D.B. Cooper was was a while back. This one was in 2003. Now, 2003, if you look at it, it's like, holy shit, that's already 20 years. Which, to me, I'm just like, wow. That is, like, I look down, I see liver spots already. But as far as this heist and everything like that, I would have thought it was way longer than that, right? But 2003 in Antwerpen, uh, Belgium, which is known as the diamond capital of the world. So, uh, yeah, that's. I guess that's one clue. Uh, Though arrests were made and time was served, most of the diamonds stolen remain uncovered. Well, that's shocking. Of course. I mean, you know, there's just some things I don't think you'll ever be able to retrieve, you know, gain back. I just don't see that happen. So the Antwerp Diamond Center, the ADC, was one of the most secure buildings in the world. Right, with hundreds of millions of do- hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds stored in its subterranean vault, it had to be, of course, if if it would, if you know, be in the diamond capital of the world, you'd have to have that. It was uh, it's uh, it's located in the heart of Belgium's ultra secure Antwerp diamond district, ADD. Interesting. It benefited from two police stations, um, armed pat- armed patrols, extensive video surveillance. And vehicle barriers vehicle securing an area where 80% of the world's diamonds traded hands. Now, that might sound like, you know, quite quite a lockdown and quite a bit of security. But we will get back. We'll get into that a little bit more. It'll blow your mind. It It is kind of like almost like that Ocean's 11. But I would say even 10 times. I wouldn't imagine... I can't even imagine I can't even believe that somebody actually attempted this, more so even succeeding at it. I mean, there I I don't know how how they were able to do it. And, and they still don't, because it's quite fascinating. So the vault that housed the diamonds is situated, is situated two floors below the main floor. Okay. It was protected by multiple multiple security mechanisms, including a lock with 100 million possible combinations, infrared heat detectors, a seismic sensor, all right, so detecting vibrations, Doppler radar, and a magnetic field. So, you know, pony pony that up on top of what I just said with the, you know, two police stations, armed patrols, extensive video surveillance, vehicle barriers, I mean, now you're putting all that in there is insane, and plus it's on you know it's it's basically underground is, is for the most part. Uh, the building itself had a private security force and was located in the heavily guarded and monitored Antwerp Diamonds D the ADD that's called right. <laughs> so the theft, which is still still crazy, right? But the theft was actually carried out um by a five man team, and that team was actually led by Leonardo Nortapartuolo. and um well he was always a he was a professional thief who was also skilled in social manipulation, which you know most scam artists uh and, and a lot of thieves are right We're gonna go leo by this time <laughs> we're gonna call me up with the is is some fucking mouthful? Listen, yeah, I speak Spanish, but you'd be surprised how different how different Italian and, and Spanish actually is. All right, so who is Leonardo Notar Bartolo? Well, Leo, by his own account, had pulled off dozens of major robberies by 2000. It wasn't just about the money anymore. He stole because he was born to be a thief. He still remembers every detail of his first robbery, it was 1958. He was six. His mother had sent him out for milk, and he came back with 5,000 lira, or more about $8. The milkman had been asleep, and young Leo rifled through his drawers. His mother beat him, but it didn't matter. He had found his calling, which, crazy, six years old, right? In elementary school, he filched money from his teachers, As a teenager, he stole cars and learned to pick locks. In his 20s, he devoted himself to the study of people, tracking jewelry salesmen around Italy for weeks, just to understand their habits. In his 30s, he began to assemble teams of thieves, each with their own specialty. He knew lock picking experts, alarm aces, safe crackers, guys who could tunnel uh, under anything, and a man who could scale the sleek exteriors of office buildings. Each job brought a different mix of these into play. Most including Leo lived, it lived in or near Turin and the group came to be known as the school of Turin. So it's it's straight up like, like, and, and they, from what I understand, they have done movies of these, of this, and I'm not sure what they're called or anything like that, but it obviously just starts off as a Hollywood movie for real. And, you know, like these type of guys, I mean, obviously, I guess, I guess he had found his calling and he went deep and he went all in, right? And it's pretty nuts for somebody to do that and to be so obviously so successful at it. I'm sure, but you know, it's 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 kind of like you you being on you're like an entrepreneur, honestly, you know, and then you end up being a creating your own business, right? And then you start hiring people and teams and basically hiring experts to to do what it you know uh what what you what you, what needs to be done in order for your business for your business to succeed and keep moving forward uh i'm telling you some of the like thieves and like and, and i don't mean to say it in this bad way but a lot of thieves and like drug dealers especially the drug dealers are phenomenal businessmen it's so you know the firings depending on what what you know, organization you work for is um, not the best, though. And you definitely don't get a a severance package. I mean, you, do, you get some severance, but maybe you're maybe, you know, you get your package severed from your body. That's closer along the firing. So Leo's specialty was charm. Acting the part of the jolly jeweler, he was invited into offices, workshops and even vault rooms to inspect merchandise. He would buy a few stones and then a week or a month later, steal the target's entire stock in the middle of the night. Antwerp provided a wealth of opportunity and a good place to fence hot property. A diamond necklace stolen in Italy could be dismantled and its individual gems sold for cash in Antwerp. So that's where that lies. Obviously, separate jewelry, dismantle it, and sell it in pieces. If it's anything like a car, you'd make more money because you take pieces of a car, you could definitely make more money than selling the entire car, I swear to God. He came to town about twice a month, stayed a few days at a small apartment near the Diamond District, then drove home to his wife and kids in the foothills of the Alps. Yep. <laughs> so uh, when he had stolen goods to sell, he dealt with only a few trusted buyers. Now, as he finishes his espresso, one of them, a jewish a jewish dealer came in and sat down to chat he says actually i wanted to talk to you about something a little unusual the dealer said casually maybe we could walk a little they headed out and then once they were clear off the district the dealer picked up the conversation his tone had changed his his tone had changed however the casualness was gone i'd like to hire you for a robber he said A big robbery. The target, the Antwerp Diamond Center Vault, which, here it is, is protected by 10 layers of security. Okay? The uh, 10 the, the 10 layers of security, the door consists of six areas. First, the combination dial that has a possibility of over... 100 million combinations a keyed lock yes a keyed lock and as we dive into this a little bit more you'll be surprised it's very interesting number three a seismic sensor that's built in four a locked steel gate or grate five a magnetic sensor and six the external security camera. Now, remember, that's just the door. You haven't even got to the vault yet, the the vault itself inside the vault, okay? This is the door to the vault. Inside the vault are four more layers. Number seven is the keypad for disarming the sensors. Number eight, a light sensor. Number nine, internal security camera, and 10, heat motion sensor approximate location that is a target that's what they're going to try to rob that sounds impossible it sounds like all of a sudden again watching some type of oceans you know oceans 11 or some james bond or something like that absolutely insanity absolutely insanity I'm, i'm curious how many people he asked and they were just like nah fuck that right i mean that's you're just looking it's like almost like a suicide mission in a sense right and it's not like you know one of them's employed so leo there does disguise himself as a jewel uh you know as a jeweler basically so he's kind of amongst amongst That group amongst those people, which is how he, you know, garnered the trust for the most part. So in addition to Leo, the team consisted of at least four other members, okay, whom Leo gave aliases during interviews, uh, though he refused to specify whom each alias referred to. Okay, so first one was Speedy. He was, uh, he's described as an anxious and paranoid man. He was a longtime friend of Leo and was the one responsible for scattering. Well, we'll go over that in a little while. The the monster, number two, the monster, um, well, actually number three, right? Because we have Leo, number one, speedy, number two, monster, number three, described as, as a tall, muscular man. He was apparently an expert lock picker, electrician, mechanic, and driver and was very, very strong. The genius... Is the fourth one, a specialist in alarm systems. Um, An electronics expert expert known to be linked to a series of robberies. And number five, the King of Keys. An older man. He was described as one of the best key forgers in the world. So, very, very interesting. All right. I mean, the King of Keys. Those are, I I, I mean, I got to say... Pretty cool, uh, pretty cool. He says, and hey, he's not a rat, you know, right? Not a rat. <laughs> okay, so Leo had rented a sparsely furnished uh, office for pro- uh, for approximately twenty five thousand Belgian franc francs, which is seven about seven hundred dollars per month, in the Antwerp World at Diamond Center. This was a technique pioneered by New York City based criminal authority Mister Stan. I would say his name, but. I couldn't pronounce it. (laughs) It was a first. Now, let's see what uh, Mr. Stan is um, or was, I guess. Yeah. Oh, wow. He only passed away in 2022. 1937, he was born. He was a a Serbian-born American journalist and one-time crime figure, most famous for his leading role in the Kaza heist. He immigrated to the United States in 1952 uh Stan Stan was also later involved in the with yaks and the pink panthers and serbian mafia figures he is the father of pavli and he died of mesothil, mesotholemia oh, mesotholemia that's not a very hard word to pronounce i'm just for some reason can't speak english today <clears throat> uh on june 13th 2022 that's uh just a few days ago actually so, um, so it was pioneered by him. It was first it was first accomplished in New York's Diamond Center many years prior to this robbery. It included creating access to the safe deposit box located in the vault beneath the building. The method provided a tenant ID card offering twenty four hour access to the building. There, he poses as an Italian diamond merchant to gain credibility. The robbery required 18 months of preparation. The group used a variety of methods to overcome the secret systems and left investigators confused as to how they managed to successfully gain entry without triggering the system. I'm actually, it's, I know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little bit, but I think, I just, I, I felt that this is a better way to approach it. I'm actually gonna read, so it, you're basically gonna be listening to an Audible with probably a shit voice and a lot of stuttering and stumbling. But I think the writer here tells a story in in such a great way that I I think it's I think it's actually the perfect way. I've of all the articles that I've read, he really put it together. So well. And he was actually the one that talked to Leo. Uh, the name, the the, the author's name is Joshua Davis. He has an he has a website, joshuadavis.net. And uh and I actually just want to read basically his article. And I just, you know, I, I don't usually do that. So you'll be listening to a, an audible book basically. But again, the reason I'm doing this is because I I think it's I think I'd be doing a disservice if I did it any other way. And he just puts it well. The, the story is put together really well. It's it's exactly like reading a book, almost watching a movie. Because if I keep reading like what I was going through a little bit ago, um which I cut out, I think it takes away from the story too much. So let's get back to let's get to the untold story of the world's. Biggest diamond heist. All right. So, first, Leo strolls into the prison visiting room trailing a guard as if the guy were his personal assistant. Okay. We, we heard that at the beginning. The other convicts in this Eastern Belgian prison turn to look. Leo nods and smiles faintly, the laugh lines crinkling around his blue eyes. Though he's an inmate and wears the requisite white prisoner jacket, Leo Rezier radiates a sunny Italian charm. A silver Rolex peeks out from under his cuff and vertical strip of white sole patch drops down from his lower lip like an exclamation mark. Man, Rolex. In prison. Yeah, if you're going to do time, I guess do it in Belgium. In February of 2003, Leo was arrested for heading a ring of Italian thieves. They were accused of breaking into a vault. Two floors beneath the Antwerp Diamond Center and making off with at least $100 million worth of loose diamonds, gold, jewelry, and other spoils. The vault thought to be impenetrable, it was protected by 10 layers of security, and we'll go through this again, including infrared heat detectors, Doppler radar, a magnetic field, a seismic sensor, and a lock with 100 million possible combinations. The robbery was called the heist of the century, and even now... The police can't explain how it was done. The loot was never found, but based on circumstantial evidence, Leo was sentenced to 10 years. He has always denied having anything to do with the crime and has refused to discuss his case with journalists, preferring to remain silent for the past six years. Until now. Leo sits down across from me at one of the visiting rooms. Two dozen small rectangular tables. He has an intimidating reputation. The Italian anti-mafia police contend he is tied to the Sicilian mob that his cousin was tapped to be the next capo, the head of the entire organization. Leo intends to set the record straight. He puts his hands on the table. He has had six years to think about what he's about to say. He sits down right across the table and says, I may be a thief and a liar, he says in the Belgian-Italian-accented French, but I'm going to tell you a true story. It was February 16, 2003, a clear frozen Sunday evening in Belgium. Leo took the E19 motorway out of Antwerp. In the passenger seat, a man known as Speedy fidgeted nervously, damp with sweat. Leo punched it and his rented Pigua 307 sped south towards Brussels. They hadn't slept in two days. Speedy scanned the traffic behind him in the side view mirror and maintained a tense silence. Leo had worked with him for 30 years. They were childhood buddies, but he knew that his friend had a habit of coming apart at the end of the job. The others on the team hadn't wanted Speedy in on this one. They said he was a liability. Leo could see their point. But out of loyalty, he defended his friend, Speedy. He, de- he defended his friend, Speedy could handle it, he said. And he had. They had executed the plan perfectly. No alarms, no police, no problems. The heist wouldn't be discovered until guards checked the vault on Monday morning. The rest of the team was already driving back to Italy with the gems. They'd rendezvous outside Milan to Divyed all up. There was no reason to worry. Leo and Speedy just had to burn the incriminating evidence sitting in the garbage bag in the backseat. They were accused of breaking into the Antwerp Diamond Center's super secure vault and stealing $100 million in diamonds, gold, and jewelry. The loot was never found, but their trash was. Leo pulled off the highway and turned onto a dirt road that led into a dense thicket. The spot wasn't visible from the highway, though the headlights of passing cars fractured through the trees. Leo told Speedy to stay put and go out and scout the area. He passed a rusty, dilapidated gate that looked like it hadn't been touched since the Second World War. It was hard to see in the dark, but the spot seemed abandoned. He decided to burn the stuff near a shed beside a small pond and headed back to the car. When he got there, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. Speedy had lost it. The contents of the garbage bag was strewn amongst the trees. Speedy was stomping through the mud, hurling paper into the underbrush. Spools of videotape clung to the branches like streamers on a Christmas tree. Israeli and Indian currency skittered past the half-eaten salami sandwich. The mud around the car was flecked with dozens of tiny glittering diamonds. It would take hours to gather everything up and burn it. I think someone's coming, Speedy said, looking panicked. Leo glared at him. The forest was quite quiet, except for the occasional sound of a car or truck on the highway. It was even possible to hear the faint gurgling of a small stream. Speedy was breathing fast and shallow. The man was clearly in the midst of a full-blown panic attack. Get back in the car, Leo ordered. They were leaving. Nobody would ever find the stuff here. The job was done. Location along the E-19 motorway north of Brussels, where Speedy dumped the garbage bag of evidence. Little italic. Patrick Pease and Agim de Brakaya arrived in the Diamond Center the next morning. They had just received a frantic call. The ball had been compromised. The subterranean chamber was supposed to be one of the most secure safes in the world. Now the foot-thick steel door was ajar. And more than 100 of the 189 safe deposit boxes had been busted open. Pays and Dubrochire were stunned. The floor was strewn with wads of cash and velvet lined boxes. Pays stepped on a diamond encrusted bracelet. It appeared that the thieves had so much loot, they simply couldn't carry it at all away. Pays and Dick Breyer. Dick Breyer. <laughs> Pays and Dubrochire. De- De- De Broker, I'll say Paisen Broiker, De Broiker, De Broiker, sorry. I'm trying to be like Mr. Audible and here I am fucking around, kind of. Paysen De Broiker led the diamond squad, the world's only specialized diamond police. They're beat, the Labyrinth and Diamond District. 80% of the world's rough diamonds pass through this three square block area, which is under 24-hour police surveillance and monitored by 63 video cameras. About three billion dollars worth of gems cells were reported here in 2003, 2003, 2003. But that's not counting the hidden world of handshake deals and off-ledger transactions. Business relationships follow the ancient family and religious traditions of the district's dominant Jewish and Indian dealers, known as. Diamond, diamond terrors. In 2000, the Belgian government realized it would acquire a special type. Geez, take two. In 2000, the Belgian government realized it would require a special type of cop to keep an eye on things and form the squad. Pays in require. <laughs> I'm saying it every time differently. Pays in Dubroquer. de Dubroquer. De, Broker, de, Broker, de, Broker, de Broker. Hayes and De were the first hires. DeBruycker called headquarters asking for a nationwide alert. The Antwerp Diamond Center had been brazenly robbed. Then he dialed SecureLink, the vault alarm company. What's the status of alarm, he asked. Fully functional, the operator said. Checking the signals coming in from the Diamond Center, the vault is secure. Then how is it that the door is wide open and I'm standing inside of the vault? De Breuker demanded, glancing at the devastation all around him. He hung up and looked at Pays. They were up against a rare breed of criminal. The Diamonds Center Vault After the Robbery. So, about 18 months earlier, in the summer of 2001, Leo sipped an espresso at a cafe. The Diamonds District Main Street. It was cramped. Narrow place with a half dozen small tables, but from the corner by the window, Leo could look out on the epicenter of the world's diamond trade. During business hours, Hazidic 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 Hazidic, sorry. Hazidic men wearing broad brimmed hats hurried past with satchels locked to the wrist, armored cars idling tensely while burly couriers with handguns wheeled away small black suitcases. They were Africans in bright blue suits, Indian merchants wearing loops around their necks, and bald Armenians with reading glasses pushed up their mottled heads. Billions of dollars in diamonds passed by the cafe's window. During the day, they travel from office to office in briefcases, coat pockets, and off-the-shelf rollies. At night, all those gems are locked up in safes and underground vaults, in one of the most densest concentrations of wealth in the world. It's also a thief's paradise. In 2000, Leo rented a small office in the Diamond Center, one of the area's largest buildings. He presented himself as a gem importer based in Turin, Italy, and scheduled meetings with numerous dealers. He bought small stones, paid cash, dressed well, and cheerfully mangled the French language. The dealers probably never knew that they had just welcomed one of the world's best jewel thieves into their circle. So after talking to the dealer by the Espresso Cafe and said he would like to hire him for a robbery, a big robbery, the agreement was straightforward. For an initial payment of 100,000 euros, Leo would answer a simple question. Could the vault in the Antrop Diamond Center be robbed? He was pretty sure the answer was no. He was a tenant in the building and rented a safe deposit box in the vault to secure his own stash. He viewed it as the safest place to keep valuables in Antwerp. But for 100,000 euros, he was happy to photograph the place and show the dealer how daunting it really was. So he strolled into the Diamond District with a pin poking out of his breast pocket. At a glance, it looked like a simple highlighter but the cap contained a miniaturized digital camera capable of storing 100 high-resolution images. Photography is strictly limited in the district, but nobody noticed Leo's pen cam. He began his reconnaissance at the police surveillance booth on the, on the Shoupstraat, a street leading into the center of the district. Behind the booth's bulletproof glass, two officers monitored the area. The three main blocks of the district bristled with video cameras. Every inch of street and sky appeared to be under watch. The booth also contained the controls for the retractable steel cylinders that are deployed to prevent vehicular access to the district. As Leo walked past, he began taking pictures. He headed towards the Diamond Center itself, a gray, 14-story fortress-like building on the south end of the district. It had a private security force that operated a nerve center located at the entrance. Access was blocked by metal turnstiles, and visitors were questioned by guards. Leo flashed his tenant ID card and breezed through. His camera captured crisp images of everything. The three-ton steel vault door. He took the elevator descending to two floors underground to a small claustrophobic room. The vault antechamber. A three-ton steel vault door dominated the far wall. It alone had six layers of security. There was a combination wheel with numbers from 0 to 99. To enter, four numbers had to be dialed, and the digits could be seen only through a small lens on the top of the wheel. There were 100 million possible combinations. Powerball... Power tools wouldn't do the trick. The door was rated to withstand 12 hours of non-stop drilling. Of course, the first vibrations of a drill bit would set off the embedded seismic alarm anyway. The door was monitored by a pair of budding metal plates, one on the door itself and one on the wall just to the right. When armed, the plates formed a magnetic field. If the door were open, The field would break, triggering an alarm. To disarm the field, a code had to be typed into a nearby keypad. Finally, the lock required an almost impossible to duplicate foot-long key. During business hours, the door was actually left open, leaving only a steel grate to prevent access. But Leo had no intention of muscling his way in when people were around and then shooting his way out. Any breaking would have, been, would have to be done at night after the guards had locked down the vault, emptied the building, and shuttered the entrances with steel roll gates. During those quiet midnight hours, nobody patrolled the interior. The guards entrusted in their technological defenses. Leo pressed a buzzer on the steel grate. A guard upstairs glanced at the video feed, recognized Leo, and remotely unlocked the steel grate. Leo stepped inside the vault. It was silent. He was surrounded by thick concrete walls. The place was outfitted with motion, heat and light detectors. A security camera transmitted the movements to the guard station and the feed was recorded on videotape. The safe deposit boxes themselves were made of steel and copper and required a key and combination to open. Each box had 17,576 possible combinations. Leo went through the motions of opening and closing his box and then walked out. The vault was one of the hardest targets he'd ever seen. Leo leans towards me in the Belgian prison and asks if I have any questions so far. It is a rare break in his fast-moving monologue. There's a sense of urgency. He's allotted only one hour of visiting time per day. You're telling me that the heist was organized by by an Antwerp diamond dealer, I say? Bravo, he replies. What about your cousin? His smile disappears. Leo was born in Palermo, Sicily, and members of his extended family have long been dogged by accusations of mafia connections. Those accusations reached a crescendo last year when anti-mafia police arrested Leo's cousin, Benedetto Capizzi, claiming he was about to become the new leader of the Sicilian Mafia. Leo says the Italian authorities traveled to Belgium soon after the heist to question him about Capizzi's possible role in the robbery. If there was an organized crime link, Leo might be inventing a story about the Jewish diamond dealer to distract attention from what really happened. Leo scoffs at this idea and insists that his cousin had nothing to do with the heist. The reality, Leo says, is that the vault was impregnable. He didn't believe it could be robbed until the dealer went to extraordinary lengths to prove him wrong. All right, back to the story. It took five months for the diamond dealer to call back after Leo told him the heist was impossible. He had even... Given him the photographs to prove it. Leo thought that that would be the end of it, but now the dealer wanted to meet at an address outside Antwerp. When Leo arrived, the dealer was waiting for him in front of an abandoned warehouse. I want to introduce you to some people, he said, unlocking the battered front door. Inside, a massive structure was covered with black plastic tarps. The dealer pulled back a corner and they ducked underneath. At first, Leo was confused. He seemed to be standing in the vault antechamber. To his left, he saw the vault door. He was inside an exact replica of the Diamond Center's vault level. Everything was the same. As far as Leo could tell, the dealer had reconstructed it based on the photographs he had provided. Leo felt like he had stepped into a movie. Inside the fake vault... Three Italians were having a quiet conversation. They stopped talking when they saw the dealer and Leo. The dealer introduced them, though Leo refuses to reveal their names, referring to them only by nicknames. The genius specialized in alarm systems. According to the dealer, he could disable any kind of alarm. You can disable this, Leo asked, pointing at the replica vault. I can disable most of it, The genius said with a smile, you're going to have to do one of two things, one or two things yourself, though. The tall, muscular man was the monster. He was called that because he was monstrously good at everything he did. He was an expert lock picker, electrician, mechanic, and driver, and had enormous physical strength. Everybody was a little scared of him, which was another reason for the nickname. The king of keys was a quiet older man. His age set him apart from the others. He looked like somebody's grandfather. The diamond dealer said that the wizened locksmith was among the best key forgers in the world. One of his contributions would be to duplicate the nearly impossible to duplicate foot long vault key. Just give me a clear video of it, the old man told Leo. I'll do the rest. That's not easy, Leo pointed out. King of Keys shrugs, says, that's not my problem. Don't worry, the genius said. I'll help. In September of 2002, a guard stepped up to the vault door and began to spin the combination wheel. It was 7 a.m. He was right on schedule. Directly above his head, and invisible behind the glare of a recessed light, a fingertip-sized video camera captured his every move. With each spin, the combination came to rest on a number. A small antenna broadcast the image. Nearby in a storage room beside the vault, an ordinary-looking red fire extinguisher was strapped to the wall. The extinguisher was fully functional but a watertight compartment inside housed Electronics that picked up and recorded the video signal. When the guard finished dialing the combination, he inserted the vault key. The video camera recorded a sharp image of it before it disappeared into the keyhole. He spun the handle and the vault door swung open. Thursday morning, February 13th, 2003. Two days before the heist, the thud, thud, thud of a police helicopter beat over a convoy of police cars escorting an armored truck through the heart of Antwerp. They blew past posters of Venus Williams. She was due in town to compete in the Proximus Diamond Games Tennis Tournament. The escorts bristled firepower. They belonged to a special diamond delivery protection unit, and each cop carried a fully automatic weapon. Their cargo? The beers. Monthly shipment of diamonds worth millions. The Bears is the world's largest diamond mining company. In 2003, it controlled 55% of the global diamond supply and operated mines in South Africa, Namibia, and Botswana. Among others, the rough, unpolished gems were flown to London, where they were divided into 120 boxes. One for each official De Beers distributor, many of which were headquartered in Antwerp. Every month, Antwerp's share of the boxes was flown into Belgium and transferred to a Brinks armored tr- armored truck. Once the truck's door slammed shut, the convoy sped away, sirens wailing. The vehicles rocketed past the guard gate and the entrance of the district. At the giant metal, as and the giant metal metal cylinders rose out of the ground behind them blocking any further automotive access. The armed escorts fanned out on foot around the armored truck to form a perimeter. No one was allowed near the vehicle. The door swung open and the boxes were quickly carried through an unremarkable entrance in the middle of the block. It was payday. The Diamond District was flush. Leo was buzzed into the vault the next day, Friday, February 14th, the day before the robbery. He was alone. In his jacket pocket, he carried a can of women's hairspray. A security camera recorded his movements. Police would later watch the footage, but the guard had gotten used to the Italian's frequent visits and wasn't paying attention. Leo stepped away from the safe deposit boxes and pulled out the aerosol can. With a quick practice circular motion, he covered the the combined heat motion sensor with a thin coat of transparent oily mist. The vault was momentarily filled with the smell of a woman's hair. It was a simple but effective hack. The oily film would temporarily insult... The oily film would temporarily insulate the sensor from fluctuations in the room's temperature. And the alarm went off only if it sensed both heat and motion. Still, it was hard to guess how long the trick would work. Once the monster was in the vault... He had to install the sensor bypass before his body heat penetrated the film. He might have five minutes, he might have less. Nobody knew for sure. Venus Williams smashed the ball cross-court with a yelp, overwhelming her leggy Slovakian opponent. It was Saturday night, and Williams was dominating the semifinals of the Diamonds Games, an event that hyped Antrop's predominant position in the gem world. Many of the city's traders watched as Williams beat down the Slovak and moved one step closer to winning a tennis racket encrusted with nearly $1 million worth of stones. Across town, the Diamond District was deserted. Leo drove his rented grey Pigua 307 past the city's suit, covered central train station, and turned into Palikines Strat, a road, that's the name of the road, sorry. A road that skirted the district. He pulled to the curb, and the monster, the genius, and the king of keys and speedy stepped out carrying large duffel bags. The king of keys picked the lock on a rundown office building, and then they disappeared through the door. It was a little past midnight. The genius led them out to the rear of the building into a private garden that abutted the back to the Diamond Center. It was one of the few places in the district that wasn't under video surveillance. Using the ladder he had previously hidden there, the genius climbed up to a small terrace on the second floor. A heat sensing infrared de- detector monitored the terrace, but he approached it slowly from behind a large homemade polyester shield. The low thermal conductivity of the polyester blocked his body heat from reaching the sensor. He placed the shield directly in front of the detector, preventing it from sensing anything. The balcony was now safe. While the rest of the team scrambled up, the genius disabled an alarm sensor on one of the balcony's windows. One by one, the thieves climbed through the window, dropped into a stairwell, and descended to the darkened vault antechamber. They covered the security cameras with plastic, black plastic bags and flipped on the lights. The vault door stood imposingly before them. The building was quiet. No alarms had been triggered. The police never determined how the men had entered the building. The genius pulled a custom-made slab of rigid aluminum out of his bag and affixed heavy-duty double-sided tape to one side. He stuck it on the two plates that regulated the magnetic field on the right side of the vault door and unscrewed their bolts. The magnetic plates were now loose, but the sticky aluminum held them together, allowing the genius to pivot them out of the way and tape them to the antechamber wall. The plates were still side by side and active. The magnetic field never wavered, but they no longer monitored the door. Some 30 hours later, The authorities would marvel at the ingenuity. Next, the King of Keys played out a hunch. In Leo's videos, the guard usually visited a utility room just before opening the vault. When the thieves searched the room, they found a major security lapse. The original vault key was hanging inside. The King of Keys grabbed the original. There was no point in letting the safe manufacturers know that their precious key could be copied, and the police still don't know that a duplicate was made. The King of Keys slotted the original in the keyhole and waited while the genius dialed in the combination they had gleaned from the video. A moment later, the genius nodded. The monster turned off the lights. They didn't want to trigger the light detector in the vault when the door opened. In the darkness, the King of Keys kings turned the key and spun a four-pronged handle the bolts that secured the door retracted and it swung heavily open speedy ran up the stairway stairwell it was his job to stay in touch with leo but there was no phone cell phone reception down the vault upstairs he got a signal and dialed his old friend we're in he said and hung up leo put his phone back on the dashboard he was sitting in the paguat and could see the front of the diamond center, a block and a half away. His police scanner was quiet. He took a sip of his cold coffee and waited. In the antechamber, the king of keys deftly picked the lock on the metal grate. He shuffled backward as a monster propped the grate open with two cans of paint he found in the storeroom. Like the rest of the team, the monster wore plastic gloves. The police would find no prints on the cans. It was now up to him to disable the remaining system. The monster orientated himself in the darkness at the vault entrance. The only sound was the steady breathing of the others behind him. His body was already projecting heat into the vault. The hairspray on the infrared sensor wouldn't last. Every second he was there would raise the ambient temperature. He had to move quickly, but keep his heart rate low. The monster bypassed the vault security system's main inbound and outbound wires and then covered this light sensor with tape, rendering it useless. As he practiced in the warehouse, he strode exactly 11 steps into the middle of the room, reached for the ceiling, and pushed back a panel. He felt the security system main inbound and outbound wires. An automatic electric pulse Constantly shot into the room and back out along these wires. If any of the sensors were tripped, the circus would the circuit would break. When a pulse shot into the room, it expected an answer. If it didn't get an answer, it activated the alarm. With his hands over his head, the monster used this tool to strip the plastic coating off the wires. It was a delicate task. One slip could cut through, instantly breaking the circuit and tripping the alarm. The police would later discover stripped wires in the ceiling and guess that the thieves considered cutting them only to lose their nerve. But Leo says that the monster knew exactly what he was doing. Once the copper wires were exposed, he clipped a new pre-cut piece of wire between the inbound and outbound cables. This bridge rerouted the incoming electrical pulse over to the outbound wire before the signal reached the sensors. It no longer mattered what happened further down the line. The sensors were out of the loop. It was now safe for the others to enter. Still, the men were cautious. They blinded the heat motion detector with the styrofoam box, covered the light detector with tape, and then set to work. The King of Keys unloaded a homemade, handcrafted drill and fitted it with a thin shaft of metal. He jammed the shaft into one of the locks and cranked for about three minutes until the lock broke, snapping open the box. The guys took turns janking the contents out. Since they had memorized the layout of the vault and the replica, they worked in the dark, turning on their flashlights only for split seconds, enough to position the drill over the next box. But in those muffled flashes, they could glimpse their Duffel bags overflowing with gold bars, gold bars, millions in Israeli, Swiss, American, European, and British currencies, and leather satchels that contained the mother load, rough and polished diamonds. They resist, resisted their urge to examine their hall. They were running out of time. By 5:30 a.m., they had opened 109 boxes. A tamp-down giddiness. A tapped down giddiness pervaded the dark vault, but they had to stop. The streets would fill with people soon, and they needed to transfer their bags to Leo's car. Speedy relayed the message to him. They were coming out. It took almost an hour for the team to haul the bags up the stairs, pass by the infrared sensor, lower the loot down the ladder, and gather in the hallway of the decrepit office building. Leo idled at the curb while on the phone with Speedy. A bus came and went. And then the street was empty. Now, he hissed. In the pre-dawn half light, four men raced out of the building. They jammed the bags in the car, slammed doors, and headed off foot to Leo's apartment. He put the car in gear and slowly pulled away. In half an hour, they were huddled around the bags in the apartment. The monster unzipped one and pulled out a leather satchel. It was time to celebrate. He opened the satchel and looked up, bewildered. It was empty. He took out another. It was also empty. A wave of anxiety swept the room. They unzipped all the other duffel bags and rifled through the satchels. More often than not, there was nothing in them. Something had gone wrong. The diamonds should have been there. We've been set up, Leo said. Whew, Leo stepped into a scalding hot shower while the others made salami sandwiches in the kitchen. He needed some clarity. The fatigue was weighing in on him. In the weeks preceding the heist, he had seen many of the satchels in the offices of the uh, Dimitris, and they were f- always filled with inventory. He expected the total take to exceed $100 million. Now they were looking at a fraction of that, possibly $20 million. Leo reflected on his interactions with the diamond dealer, and a thought flashed through his mind. Maybe the dealer wasn't operating alone. If he tipped off a group of his fellow merchants, they could have pulled their inventory out of the vault before the heist. Each could then claim that their gems were stolen and collect the insurance while secretly keeping their stones. Most had safes in their offices. They could have simply kept the stock there. Leo realized that the heist he had spent so much time planning might have have actually been part of an elaborate insurance scam. He shut off the water. A half hour earlier, he was king. Now, he felt like a pawn. Speedy and Leo were on the E19 heading out of Antwerp. It was six o'clock on Sunday evening. Leo settled in for the 10-hour drive back to Turin. The garbage bag filled with incriminating evidence sat in the back seat. Leo planned to stop in France and burn it, leaving no trace of the crime. But Speedy was having trouble. His face was ashen. His eyes darted madly at the cars around him. Finally, after only 20 minutes on the road, he snapped. I can't do that drive, he said. The guy was melting down. Leo told him to take it easy. He'd drop him at the train station at Brussels. If that's what he wanted. He might actually be nicer, it might actually be nicer to do the trip without his friend driving him crazy. We can't take that garbage into Brussels, Speedy stammered. The city was crawling with cops. Maybe they would be looking for them. They couldn't run the risk. They had to drop the bag immediately. Pull off up here, he said abruptly from the passenger seat. This is ridiculous time to be having a panic attack, Leo muttered. Just pull off, his friend snapped. Leo took the exit and surveyed the darkened surroundings. There's a dirt road, Speedy said, peering into the forest. It'll be perfect. August Van Camp likes weasels. The 59-year-old retired Belgian grocer had two. He called them Mickey and Minnie, and he enjoyed sending them down holes in the forest. Typically, a rabbit came rocking out of the other end. It was a lot of fun. In 1998, he bought a narrow strip of forest alongside the E19 motorway. It was about a five-minute drive from his house, and if you ignored the sound of cars hurtling past at 80 miles an hour, it was a pretty 12 acres of tree with a gurgling stream. There were also a lot of holes with rabbits in them. But because it adjoined the highway, Van Camp found a lot of garbage. Local teenagers once decided to have a party there and burned down a little hut he'd built and made him fume with anger. When he found garbage, he phoned the police, who had gotten used to his calls. A typical conversation. The kids have made a mess on my land again. I am sorry to hear that, Mr. Van Camp. I demand that you send someone to investigate. Yeah, we'll pass it along. We'll pass along your request. Van Camp rarely heard back. While hunting one morning, Monday, February 17th to be exact, Van Camp was incensed to find yet another pile of junk in the underbrush. After a flash of peek that made him puff out his cheeks, throw up his arms, and wonder what the world was coming to, he knelt down and glared at this refuse. He wanted to be able to describe to the cops what he had to put up with. There was a videotape, there was videotape strolling all over the place. A wine bottle nested near a half-eaten salami sandwich. There were also some white envelopes printed with the words "Diamond Center, Antwerp." Van Camp's irritation increased. "Kids," he grumbled. At home, he punched in the number of the police and asked to lodge a complaint. The officer listened as Van Camp tallied the mess. When Van Camp mentioned Diamond Center envelopes, the officer broke in. "What was that?" "Antwerp Diamond Center envelopes." Van Camp muttered, this time, the police came running. By mid-afternoon, a dozen, a half a dozen detectives swarmed the forest, painstakingly gathering the garbage and collecting stray gems. Van Camp watched this with satisfaction. The police were finally treating his litter situation with the proper respect. Within hours, the trash began to fill the evidence room at the Diamond Squad headquarters in Antwerp. A member of the squad bent over the clear plastic bags looking for immediate clues. A pile of torn paper seemed promising. It didn't take long to reassemble the pieces like a jigsaw puzzle. It was an invoice for a low-light video surveillance system. The buyer, Leonardo Nortepatolo. Back at Van Camp's property, another detective knelt among the thorny rambles and peered at a small, jagged piece of paper poking out of the mud. He carefully lifted it free and held it up to the light. It was a business card that bore the address and phone number of Elilio Dianorio, an Italian electronics expert tied to a series of robberies. Leo has consistently refused to identify his accomplices, but all evidence indicates that Dianorio is the genius. The lab techs also bagged a half-eaten salami sandwich. They found antipasto italiano salami packaged nearby and sent it along to the Diamond Squad headquarters. Four days later, the detectives executed a search warrant on the apartment Leo rented in Antwerp. In a cupboard, they found a receipt from a local grocery store for Antipasto Italiano Salami. The receipt had a timestamp. A detective drove to the grocery and asked the manager to rewind the closed-circuit television to 12.56 p.m. on Thursday, February 13th. When the video came to a halt and snapped into focus, there was an image of a tall, muscular, Italian purchasing salami. His name? Ferdinando Fenotto. The man most likely to be the monster. On Monday, about 36 hours after the job was completed, the team of thieves reassembled at a bar in Adro, Italy. A small town about 50 miles northeast of Milan. They had agreed to meet the diamond dealer there and divide the loot. The dealer would get a third for financing the operation and putting them together. The others would split the rest. They had anticipated a haul in the tens of millions each. Now they were looking at roughly $3 million per man. It was still a lot of money, but they couldn't help feeling that they'd been played. Everybody had a lot of questions for the dealer. Hour after hour... He didn't arrive. Leo was already uneasy about what had happened in the forest. He knew he had made a mistake. He should have turned around after he dropped off speedy at the train station and gone back to burn the garbage. It was an embarrassing oversight. But what really irked him was that he had vouched for his friend and the guy had cracked. They waited at the bar until closing, drinking espressos and then beer. The dealer never showed. On Thursday night, Leo ate dinner with his family at home outside of Turin. He tried to pretend that everything was normal. As usual, his three-year-old granddaughter played with his cell phone and made him laugh. He momentarily forgot his worries. His biggest problem was that he needed to get back to Belgium. The rental car was due in interrupt the next day. The plan had always been to return it and show his face in the Diamond Center. That way, if the cops were looking for tenants who disappeared, he wouldn't be on the list. It would also give him an opportunity to clean his apartment more thoroughly. He told his family that he'd be leaving early the next morning. His wife decided to come along. She hadn't seen much of him lately. They could even have a nice dinner party with some friends from the Netherlands. The next morning, <clears throat> as Leo and his wife blew through the Swiss Alps, the police surrounded their home in Italy. Acting on surveillance systems invoiced discovered on Van kamp's land, the Belgian diamond detectives had asked the Italian police to search Leo's house. His 24-year-old son, Marco, was there and refused to open the front door. He frantically dialed his father's cell phone while the police smashed the door open. In Leo's jacket pocket, his phone flashed but made no sound. His granddaughter had accidentally turned off the ringer the night, be- the night before. Marco told his- called his mother's phone. It was turned off. He tried his dad's phone repeatedly. It just rang and rang and rang. Unaware, Leo sped toward Antwerp. As Leo drove back to Belgium, Pays and (laughs) (laughs) Dubriker wondered whether they'd ever catch the thieves. They could be anywhere by now. Brazil, Thailand, Russia. It never occurred to detectives that one of the robbers would walk right back into the district. But that's exactly what Leo did. While one of his friends from the Netherlands waited on the street outside the Diamond Center, Leo waved at the security guard and dropped in to collect his mail. The guard knew that the police were investigating Leo and phoned the building manager, who immediately called the detectives. When the police arrived, they found Leo chatting with the building manager and began peppering him with questions. The friend took off as Leo stalled for time, pretending to have Trouble understanding French and claiming that he couldn't remember the exact address of his own apartment. He just knew how to walk there. Let's go then, Pay says, and loaded the Italian into the car. Eventually, Leo pointed out the apartment. As the police car pulled into the curb, <clears throat> Leo's wife and his friends, who'd come for, for dinner, stepped out of the building. They were loaded down with bags, and one carried a rolled up carpet. Another minute, and they would have been gone. The police took everyone into custody. The bags contained critical evidence. The Police dug out a series of prepaid SIM cards that were linked to cell phones used almost exclusively to call three Italians: Ilio De Norio, aka the Genius; Ferdinando Fenotto, alias the Monster; and the person most likely to be Speedy, an anxious, paranoid man named Pietro Tavano, a longtime associate of Leo's. On the night of his heist, on the night of the heist, a cell tower in the Diamond District logged the presence of all three, plus Leo. During that time, Tavano stayed in constant contact with Leo. The day Leo was arrested, Italian police broke open the safe at his home in Turin. They found 17 polished diamonds attached to certificates that the Belgian diamond detectives traced back to the vault. More gems were vacuumed out of the rolled carpet from Leo's Antwerp uh, apartment. The Belgian courts came down hard. They found Leo guilty of orchestrating the heist and sentenced him to ten years. With the cell phone records and the peculiarly precise salami sandwich evidence, the Belgian detectives persuaded French police to raid the home of Fanato's girlfriend on the French Riviera. They retrieved marked one hundred dollar bills that the detectives say belonged to one of the Diamond Center victims. Legal proceedings dragged out on, dragged on. But Finotto was finally arrested in Italy in November of 2007 and is serving a five-year sentence there. When questioned by police in Italy, the ordinal admitted admitted that he had installed security cameras in Leo's office but denied any involvement in the crime. Nonetheless, his DNA was found on some adhesive tape he left in the vault. He was extradited to Belgium in November 2007 to begin his five-year sentence. The high stung Piet- Pietro Tavano is serving a five year sentence in Italy for, for the crime. He has refused to allow his attorney to make any statements on his behalf. A fifth thief was never has never been identified. The police know of his existence via cell phone records and DNA traces. The King of Kings, the King of Keys, was never apprehended. So now we come to the end. On January 4th, 2009, I see Leo for the, for the last time. Over the past 14 weeks, we have met seven times in the prison visiting room, and yet questions remain. Was $100 million stolen, as the police estimate? Or just $20 million, as Leo insists? Does it make sense that the heist was part of a larger insurance scam? Or is Leo's story just a decoy to throw suspicion on others? Perhaps Leo's cousin, the Mafia Don, was behind the whole thing. Whatever the truth, where's the loot now? The murky nature of the diamond trade makes it difficult to get clear answers. For instance, Detective De says that three quarters of the business is done under the table. Since there were roughly $25 million in legitimate claims, at the time of the heist, he calculated that at least another $75 million in goods was stolen. That brought the total value of the heist to about $100 million. If Leo's insurance scam theory is correct, it went down like this The dealer who were in on it removed their goods, both legal and illegal, from the vault before the heist and then filed claims on the legitimate gems. Dennis Oliver, The adjuster who investigated the robbery for insurance called this a double whammy. These dealers would have gotten the insurance payouts and kept their stock. The $20 million found by the thieves belonged to traders, not in the scam. Or there was no insurance scam. The thieves actually found $100 million in the vault, and Leo has spun a story to cloud the true origins of the heist. Regardless of which theory is correct, there is agreement that the thieves got away with millions that were never recovered. Leo refuses to talk about what happened to the goods, adding that it's something best discussed once he's out of prison. In the meantime, his share may very, be well, very well be waiting for him, hidden somewhere in the foothills of the Italian Alps. So, I know. Sorry, I, sorry that... Um, I just I just read this time for the most part. Not not my normal way of doing things. Wow, an hour and 26 still went long. But I hope you guys kind of understand that. Well, actually hour and 26, I did cut some out, so it'll be short in this. But I did I I I hope you guys understand that I think it was better done this way. I'm not going to read my podcasts like this i'll do them like i usually do but i just thought the way he told the story was just so well done and um and i and and i just again i just didn't want to do a disservice to it and when i read it it really enthralled me like at first i'm like okay cool this is great but when i read that it really 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 enthralled me and i got excited about it so um you know hopefully you guys still enjoyed it regardless because I thought it was quite quite fascinating and this is why I actually I actually at the beginning that I cut out that you guys didn't hear is it was breaking down everything that they had done and then what am I going to just go through everything do all the bullet points basically and then tell the story then where's the theater in that as oscar would say from the office right um it wasn't there i know i usually read and i use all crack jokes and so forth but trust me that it was much more difficult for me as well because i had to hold my tongue quite a few times just because i didn't want to break the story i didn't want to i don't i don't want to break that away right i know this is probably like the the like the one the most serious one i've had oh man which Again, I practice a lot of this because I like to just talk, invent, and so forth. But again, I thought this was fascinating. I thought it was great. And I had to go with the untold story and just read it from that point forward. So you guys might be asking, where is Leo today, right? Well, I happened to find an article about Leo. Where is he today? Well, in 2009 crazy enough and jamie chat gpt didn't help me on this one very much i asked jamie chat gpt and again jamie chat gpt you're gonna be upgraded from we from what we understand and and we're gonna go ahead and get this done because um you stopped learning in 2021 which surprises me right but this is this this update comes in 2009 so i mean my friend, you know, I love you. I do. You've helped me a lot. But let's 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 get some facts straight here, and um, and hopefully, once we upgrade you, you'll definitely be a lot more on top of things, shall we say? Luckily, I did. Jamie ChatGPT did thank me though that I I went ahead and copy and pasted that into into it, and. Very promptly, Jamie ChatGPT thanked me for providing that updated information. Apologized even for the outdated details in the previous response that he gave me. And went ahead and said, Yep, indeed it appears so far. I don't want to tell anything yet. And then at the end, once again, I appreciate the updated information you provided, and I apologize for any confusion caused by the outdated de- the outdated details in my early responses. See, even GPT takes accountability. And takes responsibility unlike these millennials nowadays and these other people that feel like they're victims and it's everybody else's fault i mean come on even ai is taking accountability learn take it take a lesson huh take a lesson all right so where is leo today in 2009 yes 2009 Leo was released on parole after serving four years of his sentence. That's not bad, especially when you're able to wear a Rolex in there. huh? However, he reportedly violated a few conditions of his parole, including compensating the victims of the Antwerp Diamonds heist. After a European arrest warrant was issued against him in 2011, Leo was arrested again in January of 2013. (laughs) <laughs> at the Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, Ugh, France. Once he served the remainder of his sentence, he was released from prison in 2017. Jamie Chat GPT, you said you stopped learning in 2021, September 2021. This is 2017 again. Appreciate the apology. We'll we'll let it go now. For now. Since his return from prison. Leo has seemingly been residing in his home in Giovanni, a commune in Turin, Italy. He is in his 70s, mostly prefers to lead private life nowadays, and supposedly supposedly owns and runs a small jewelry factory. Hmm. Besides, it is unclear whether Leo is still in touch with his wife and kids. Surprisingly, the rest of the stolen diamonds from the heist have still not been recovered. And the investigators could never figure out how the robbers flawlessly executed such an intricate plan. Yeah. Yeah, quite nuts. Quite nuts. Uh, Of course, they're never going to be found. How would that ever be found? You get a bike stolen in the city and it's never going to be found. You expect jewelry to be found? Not going to happen, right? it's it's pretty nuts now this is not to be confused because i did type in the 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 hundred million dollar heist and there's two other ones that came up actually which i was actually kind of looking in all of a sudden realized wait a minute these are uh, these are completely different heists one of them was five men convicted in the hundred million dollar million jewel heist that rocked germany and the thieves who robbed dresden dresden's green vault in 2019 are members of the remote crime family so that's pretty recent and then the other one 100 million dollars gone in 27 minutes after possibly the most expensive jewelry heist in u.s history brinks is the one that dropped the ball on that and then went after the victims i read that that was that was fucking nuts too but I'm not gonna go into that because we're way over. However, I just wanted to say that if you guys do Google, that's what you'll find. But again, this was on Wire, on WIRED, sorry. The gentleman, the author's name is Joshua Davis. Again, his website is joshuadavis.net. And uh, he's the one that did all the hard work and I thought it was fantastic. So crazy stuff to me, I thought, I've, I, again, it was just absolutely incredible that something like this had happened. And actually, again, not, not too long ago, you know, um, it's pretty crazy. Now, the question is, was it a robbery? Like, did he steal it or was it an insurance scam? What was it? I mean, we will we will never know. We will never know probably more than likely. We will never know. But um anyways, got to get out of here. I'm getting very hungry. It's wow, later than I thought. And of course, I honestly didn't think that it was going to be this late and uh or go this long. An hour and now we're in 34. So um hopefully or i don't know maybe soon we will get a letter from Brad. fingers crossed and then next time i won't be reading I, we won't be listening to an audible book but again hope you guys enjoyed it nonetheless and um, again don't forget to subscribe and download check out my youtube jose meza degenerate and ig jose Mesa underscore creator also remember don't forget to check out exomod carbon that's an ig as well and appreciate you guys, of course, again taking your time um, for taking for, for listening to the podcast, giving me your time to help me out. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for the support from all of you. And I will talk to you guys next time. That's a fucking wrap.